everyone, and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. I hope you all had a festive Christmas and an enjoyable New Year. But for those of you suffering with a bit of the late January blues, never fear, as Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast is back, and back with a bang. We've had a hiatus over the New Year period, but today we are bringing you a special two-part episode from our Sustainability Leaders Forum, located at the wonderful Business Design Centre in London. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Matt Mace, and I'll be bringing you insights, reflection and interviews from the event today. So, the Sustainability Leaders Forum brings together leading sustainability professionals across a range of sectors, all who are able and willing to share insight into how they're shaping a low-carbon future. This morning's session kicks off with Edie's content director, Luke Nichols, interviewing Dell's senior vice president, Claire Vivian, to discuss the elephant in the boardroom, which is sustainability and profits. It's an intriguing subject, and judging by the build-up in the networking area in the other room, our delegates agree. Already, hundreds have appeared, um, all grabbing a early morning coffee, but all ready to gain insight from that interview. And uh, never fear, we will be covering that in depth on our website. But what does this podcast hope to achieve? Well, with speakers and delegates from the likes of WWF, Coca-Cola, Landsec, HP and more, I've been tasked with piecing together an audio diary, if you will, of the day and tomorrow's events. I'll be bringing you exclusive interviews from a range of speakers, updates from the Sustainability Leaders Awards, and I'll be touching on that later, and my own personal musings of today's event. And let's be honest, that's the real reason you're tuning in. So, let's have a rummage through the crowd and see who I can find for interview numero uno. I've managed to grab my first interview of the day and I now stand here with Ralph Cortner. Um, Ralph, you told me your job title um, about three or four times, but such is the hectic uh, day that it is, I've forgotten three or four times. So if you wouldn't mind introducing to our listeners your, your job role at Siemens. Yeah, so I could give you my job title, but um, basically what I do at Siemens, um, we are helping other companies to be energy intelligent. Mm. That means um, being in control of their cost, having a handle on their sustainability targets and setting up the energy system that they need without necessarily building up their own um, um, intelligence around around the um, energy. So the job title is Head of Distributed Energy for Siemens Mm. in the UK and Ireland. Um, but what we really are is um, yeah, a bunch of um, energy experts, energy geeks that are, um, that are talking to customers and co-creating energy strategies and energy measures, energy systems mm. that help our customers to offset cost, um, to, to, um, to secure their energy supply and to be in control of their carbon emission. I like the phrase energy geeks, I think that's a, that's a really, really nice term and especially at an event like the Sustainability Forum where we, we do get a lot of people who are really optimistic um, about the future but they face a lot of challenges and I imagine energy is a, is a real big one for them. We're on a real, I suppose, evolution of, of how companies can interact with, with energy. Um, you mentioned these kind of decentralized systems that are kind of born out of new technologies like yeah. Internet of Things, you've got energy storage, you've got this whole flexibility and, and data management. So um, what what aspect of, of that, I know it's a big, big chunk of new technology, but what aspect about that excites you and, and Siemens the most? Which one do you see as a real game changer? Oh, that, so I think um, there's a couple of game changing technologies, but for me it's about the, the game changer. It's not that it's about technologies, it's about 
um, having the bespoke system that makes sense. So what excites me most is that um, if you think of the energy market, that is a very um, protected market. If you think back 10 years, 15 years, you had big power plants generating electricity, big transmission lines, distribution lines, and some people consuming it and then paying for the electricity consumed. Today, you and I, we can make a decision to buy some rooftop PV and become an investor in the market. So the market completely opened up and um, changed completely and is um, currently um, being disrupted as we speak. Um, that means um, innovation cycles for technologies get shorter and shorter. Um, PV um, halves its cost every six to seven years. Storage, um, people believe that this is the next big game changer. Um, halves its cost every six to seven years. If you extrapolate the challenge and think of what new business models that allows, that triggers for you and me to participate in the energy market, um, that is, I think, the most exciting thing. So I think the next big thing is not going to be a technology. It's going to be new business models, new new um, opportunities for people to participate in the energy market, new ways for us to think energy. All is going to be technology enabled. It's going to use renewables. It's going to use storage. But I think we're going to talk about peer-to-peer -peer trading. We're going to talk about the Bitcoin of energy. We're going to mm. talk about the IoT. Yes, um, having a, an, an open... Uh, uh, a platform that manages your everyday life um, requirements like transportation, like energy, making a, a completely different user experience for you as, as a consumer um, of goods. I think that's the, the, that's the exciting thing. Okay, yeah, that's, that's really exciting to hear about. And you touched on energy storage, which we'll, we'll come back to in a second, but you mentioned these new business models. And um, I suppose a lot of delegates here have, have been, you know, they're, they're quite flexible, they're quite they're quite proactive, they're quite willing to pivot and, and talk to different people, but are these new systems gonna require new skills from a sustainability professional? Is it is it less kind of internal talking, more cross-sector collaboration? Is that the kind of skills they're gonna have to develop? Yeah, I think it's all of that, and it's gonna be companies that will fill those gaps. So um, the traditional roles in the energy market were utilities, so people investing in assets and producing electricity. You had traders, you had people that maintain the infrastructure. Today already you have a massive change in terms of those roles in the market. Utilities really struggling to find the foothold, rethinking their business models, DNOs, so the network operators, the infrastructure operators, thinking about what additional services that they could offer. You have new companies like in the UK, Lime Jump, Neas, aggregators coming into the place, startups disrupting the whole industry. I think um, it's going to be there's there's going to be a new new roles in the market delivering new kind of cross collaborative um, services. I think yes, um, sust as a sustainability officer, you need to step up the game and um, integrate the different the different branches. It's not going to be an energy alone or a transportation alone or whatever alone topic. It's it's going to be your job. The real value add is bringing bringing all of those opportunities together and forming a holistic strategy around it, and then finding the right partners to implement it. And obviously Siemens is great at offering these type of services to, to its customers. Uh, I'd be interested to know what your own internal sustainability strategy is. I, I know there was some, a few new goals or a few new targets announced recently, so you'd be willing to tell our listeners about, about what Siemens is doing for its own sustainability strategy? Yeah, um, so we at Siemens, we take sustainability as not only as a topic for like specialists and philanthropes, for us that's um, purpose and our role in the society is one of the core values that define our business strategy. Um, and for us, it's a matter of being um, turning that into a competitive advantage. So we are very active in um, 
in um, terms of sustainability, Siemens has, I think, been ranked um, number one, two, and three in the last seven or eight years in the Dow Jones Sustainability Index amongst its peers. We're very aggressive um, um, carbon neutrality target, uh, carbon reduction targets. Mm -hmm. So Siemens committed to become carbon neutral in 2030. Oh wow! Reduce um, carbon emissions versus 2014, which is our baseline, by 50% until 2020, and we're already ahead of of the targets. And what we do actually is we use this, um, or we, we have an internal fund to fund those measures, but all of those funding mechanisms, all of those measures need to um, qualify strictly in terms of payback period. So okay. we want to use that not only to become green and do the right thing and give ourselves purpose, but actually to take that as a mean to work our own bottom line, to actually offset costs to get greener, cheaper, better, fitter, um, to really use this to, as I said, to build out competitive advantage. And um, it's interesting you mentioned the, the payback aspect of it, which is, I think that's what I took from the morning session, was yeah. that sustainability has to be a business imperative, can't just be a, 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 a good to do, yeah. I think um, what Claire Vivian said. Um, and energy storage is one of those, you mentioned earlier, it's one of those technologies that's been viewed as a real kind of silver bullet, a real yeah. game changer, but I've noticed a, a lack of uptake amongst corporates using energy storage. It's, it's very um, community-based or, or public funding towards systems. And I imagine it's because of that payback aspect. But for energy storage, um, from a business perspective, what, what are the main kind of barriers that are, that are kind of halting uptake of it at the moment? I see um, three main barriers. The first is um, just the capex to cost. Um, the longer you wait, the cheaper it's going to get. Um, some people call it like the Moore's law of energy. We had it for PV, we have it for storage. Mm. Um, it's an exponential um, improvement of the functionality you get per pound invested. Mm. So energy storage is expected to halve its cost every six to seven years. And today we're just at a stage in terms of the investment that it's difficult to make business cases work from a purely financial perspective. Um, but there are business cases. It's just about finding the right application where you can stack multiple income streams or multiple uh, value streams to a storage. Um, secondly, um, one big um, barrier is um, I think that people do not know or trust. It's not proven technology. And a typical answer we get when we propose an innovative solution is, can you show me where you have built this before? Mm. My point or my response to that is, well, in a world where innovation cycles get shorter and shorter, some people call that like the exponential world, times are over that you can just wait until a technology is proven and then you use it, because then there's a new technology which is better. It's about building future-proof systems and embracing this uncertainty and seeing it as an innovative edge or a competitive edge mm. to take innovation to a system and manage innovation through the right business models, the right partners, um, and yeah, embrace that uncertainty. So first point, CapEx. Second point, um, it's not a proven technology. Um, and third point is probably along those lines, it's um, a very mechanical um, thing, it's yeah. residual value. No one knows, there's, there's theories, models, but there's no bankable solution, no bankable opinion on what is going to be the second market um, opportunity for storage, so the residual value. If you buy a storage today, it's going to be almost worthless after two years from a financial, from a bank perspective, but you have a value in actually having that storage. Mm. And that is actually, in terms of looking into the mechanics of the business plan, today a barrier which will certainly take five years until banks and financial investors have this experience with this new kind of assets. 
So it's, it's more of a case of we just need a couple of the big businesses to, to take that leap of faith, essentially, yeah. and, and back the technology? Yeah. Uh, and for us, I mean, yeah, it's easy to point towards the outside mm -hmm. world. Just pointing back at us and seeing it as a challenge for Siemens, mm. it's about bundling it into the right business model. We're experimenting with something we call storage as a service, for example, to take away that uncertainty. Okay. We have, we have our own like Siemens bank, we have our own financing, we have our own um, engineering team that really understands um, the batteries down to the package and the systems and you know, on, on electron level. We have all the right capabilities to really judge on the, the feasibility and a technical solution. Um, so we can overcome those barriers, which is why we're actively using storage on our own sites to offset our cost, because we know what we're doing. Um, but for us, the challenge for us is to wrap that into an innovative business model mm. that allows our customers to overcome this barrier. Okay, Ralph, that was brilliant. Um, really insightful. Definitely going to take away the embrace the uncertainty mantra that, that, that you mentioned there. I think that's a really positive outlook. I realize that you, um, you are actually speaking today and, and probably have some prep work to do from that. So I will let you get over that. But Ralph, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much, Matt. So it's almost lunch on day one of the event and delegates have already heard from the likes of Drax, Axo Nobel, Asda and ING um, covering a, a range of topics, sustainability being as broad as it is. And they're, they're about to come out of the main foyer to enjoy a meat-free Monday lunch. Uh, meat-free Monday is the awareness-raising campaign group founded by Paul, Mary and Stella McCartney. Um, and they have provided the food for this forum, um, which is essentially just meat-free meals to delegates. Obviously, um, meat and dairy, um, livestock as a sector, I suppose, is, is very carbon-intensive. So this is a conscious effort from the ED team to, to make the sustainability forum as sustainable as possible. Um, I'd like to be able to tell you what the, the food tastes like, but there's no rest for the wicked, and I'm off to scout the next interviewee. Um, but before I do, I will quickly mention uh, a, a quite a big event taking, on, taking place later tonight, which is ED's Sustainability Leaders Awards. Um, following day one of the forum, delegates, myself included, will be donning dinner jackets and scuttling off to the London Hilton in Park Lane. Um, it is there that Edie will be recognising and celebrating the creme de la creme of business sustainability. We will be um, handing out a total of 15 awards on the night, and they range from CSR and Charity Initiative to Sustainable Business and Person of the Year via categories such as carbon management, reporting, and behavior change. I'll be attempting, and I, I say attempting because last year I failed miserably at this. It's probably a mix of cheap microphones and alcohol consumption. Um, but I'll be trying to bring you a few snippets of wisdom from some of the attendees. I'm essentially a roaming reporter on the night. I'll have a, a microphone in my jacket pocket. I will, of course, be telling attendees that they are being interviewed and... It'll be a very, I suppose, less formal than uh, some of the interviews you would have heard on this episode and, and previous episodes. Um, it'll be very kind of, I suppose, merry um, and maybe quite loud, hence, hence why it failed last year. So bear with me on that, but it'd be great to speak to some of the judges, uh, some of the nominees, and of course, some of the winners later on in the night. So do keep a lookout for that. That, in fact, should be what kind of closes episode one of this two-parter. But that, of course, is for later on tonight. And with delegates just about to come out, now is my chance to see who I can grab for a quick chat.
Okay, so I have my uh, second interview for the day. Um, I've kind of just plucked him from, from the middle of, of his lunch, so uh, Gary, uh, apologies for that, but I, I am speaking to Gary Lapham from Lloyd's Banking Group, um, Head of Responsible Business for Commercial Banking. That's um, yes. Yeah, so it's, it's good to have um, someone from the, from the finance sector on the podcast. We speak to a lot of businesses and, and we go to a lot of events where it can be a bit of an echo chamber. You see a lot of the same faces. So someone from the finance sector is, is very welcome. So have you, have you been to many events um, like this in regards to sustainability before? I, have, I think this is one of the, um, the larger scale ones that uh, I've been to. And I think uh, a good point to, to endorse actually from your intro is that there are a lot of different faces mm. at, at this event today. So that's been a real positive to me. Um, it's also been great to see the energy in the room and the diversity of different mm. sectors. Um, so the presentations have been good, the uh, panel discussions have been excellent, and as always, the networking opportunities are just fantastic. Brilliant to hear, and, and you mentioned the, the panel session. Is there, is there any any speaker or any perhaps a, a phrase or, or, or an insight that you've taken away that's really resonated with you so far? I think uh, the theme about uh, moving from sustainability being the responsibility of a particular department or leader and actually needing to become much more embedded into the way that uh, a business operates has been uh, an area of particular interest to me. Yeah, I um, I didn't get a chance to sit in on, on that panel session, but um, the stuff that Chris Cook was saying from Axel Nobel was, was quite, um, quite eye-opening. Um, but obviously, um, the, you're from the finance sector. We, we've covered a lot recently, especially since I suppose the task force climate-related financial disclosures. That, that massive, yeah, that massive mouthful that you have to have to say um, has come out. There's been a lot of real kind of rapid progress there from from that sector. Um, I suppose our, our readers be really interested in your insights and and what the kind of finance sector looks for through this kind of different green spectrum. I suppose. Yeah. Okay. So. I think there's a, a number of different ways to come at that, that topic. I think, firstly, um, what the TCFD uh, recommendations do is they encourage corporates everywhere to raise mm. the bar. But we don't really know yet what that's going to look like because actually we'll see different people adopting and embracing at, at different rates. But it's really important because that will in turn create peer pressure and different standards for competitors to adopt and I think from the financial sector's perspective it means um, it is critical that we are able to have a fluent discussion about the things that our clients are facing into so that means we need to build our own expertise at the, the front line. I think um, then, then linking to the, the broader role of the financial sector in, in your question I think um, it's so important to see this both as a risks and an opportunities uh, discussion. So um, we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with, with our clients. We need to be able to engage with the dimensions of risk that they're facing into, be that physical risk, transition risk, etc. cetera. Um, but also conscious of the scale of investments that clients are making to become more sustainable, driven by all the drivers that we've, we've heard discussed today. And actually, inescapable truth is that that will require much more mainstream finance um, in, in the future. We, we've made a good start in that in my view, so we, we've had um, the first sort of green loan fund out in the market okay. over the last year which is primarily focused on um, commercial real estate, 
So it's essentially a discounted funding for clients who want to improve the energy efficiency of their estate. And that's been very well received by the, by the market. And I think it's a sign of um, you know, demand in, in other sectors. Okay, um, and it's great to see that there are these kind of innovative models being being pushed by banks to, to uh, I suppose, push energy efficiency and yep. sustainability um, up the agenda. But um, a lot of a lot of sustainability professionals, one of their key challenges is that unlocking access to finance, uh, finance both both internally and and obviously externally. So, yep. so what what advice would you give to someone who perhaps has this initiative? Maybe not even go to a bank, but just go into the finance department. How how should they be framing the conversation? Is it is it a case of this is good for the planet or is it a case of this is good for our bottom line? Is it a bit of both? So I think inevitably it will be a bit of both, but in corporate territory, I think the, the, well, the advice generally today has been about start with the business case and, and that business case doesn't just have to be a financial mm. one. It, it can start with the demands and expectations of your stakeholders, your end customers, your end clients through to you know, ultimately your regulators, your, um, your, your broader set of stakeholders. But I, I think, um, d- despite your point, I, I think I would always encourage people to talk to their banks as mm. well a, a, about those discussions. So it doesn't have to be uh, at the fully formed, I'm approaching you for finance stage. I think the earlier you kind of get advice from, from people that can help, the, the better. And, and is that a barrier at the moment, the, the communicational point? Is, is that as strong as it could be between banks and, and corporates regarding access to finance sustainability? I feel, yeah. my personal opinion, I'd say it's still in its infancy. Still, yeah, so, so I think um, you're seeing announcements uh, from, from ourselves, from our peer group, that demonstrate we are interested in supporting the UK's transition, the global transition to a more sustainable economy, and and that is bound to continue. I think um, from a client perspective, they may hesitate about having that kind of discussion with their bank because they're not sure where their bank may sit on on the the whole issue. And I, I guess what I would do is encourage them to discuss the kind of investments they need to make the trade-offs that they're making in terms of payback for that kind of investment. And I think what, what they will feel is a, a, a welcoming reaction from, from whoever their finance provider is. Yeah, I definitely feel the the shift in, the, in that access to green finance is these conversations will become a, um, a lot more commonplace. And then it's just a case of, again, like, like you mentioned earlier, building, building that business case. Ultimately, the UK needs to hit its five-year carbon uh, budget reductions. And when you look at the publication of the the government's clean growth strategy recently, um, industry will play a key role going forwards, not just in the emissions that we already have, but the reductions that we need to make. Yeah. That is going to require mainstream finance, and that means that um, banks are absolutely going to want to be helping their clients uh, to do so. Brilliant. So now it is it's just a case of finding the, the right projects, which um, is, is, is surely the easy bit. Um, Gary, uh, I realise that I did interrupt your, your lunch and your networking session, and I'm sure um, there's a lot of people down there that do want to talk to you. So I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Okay, so we are well into the afternoon sessions now. Um, workshops are done, and if you can hear that in the background, networking is once again in full flow. That's one of the great things about these events are 
Um, the delegates really, really want to speak to each other. Um, and they, they most definitely want to speak to my next interviewee, who um, was, a, was a speaker at one of the morning sessions and, and you know, dropped a bit of a bombshell on, on, the, uh, on the delegates here. So um, I'm with uh, Chris Cook from Axo Nobel. So to Chris, um, mind, mind filling the listeners in on, on essentially the, the revelation that you, you passed on earlier. Yeah, so we were talking about the future role of the sustainability manager and uh, whether it, it will become obsolete. Uh, and I shared with the audience that uh, I've proposed a reorganisation that means that uh, my role will actually be made redundant. So I will be actually leaving the company in a couple of months to, uh, to pass to his new. Which is, uh, sounds absolutely bizarre for, for a sustainability leaders forum for, for the sustainability professionals to say, yeah, um, I, I will essentially be, be finishing in a couple of months. What, um, what was the thinking behind the decision? It, it's not, it's not Axe and Nobel giving up on sustainability, we know that much. No, absolutely not. It, it's really about Axonobel moving to the next level of embedding. So when I started the role a few years ago, uh, really I treated it as a change management role uh, where we were looking to get sustainability really about day-to-day -day business and embedded in processes, upskilling the organisation to actually be able to think about sustainability almost without thinking about it. Uh, and, and a couple of years ago, about 18 months ago, uh, we were looking at how far we'd come in that journey and started to be able to tick off a few processes, a few boxes where we thought functions were actually becoming more self-sufficient, uh, but also recognising that in some areas having a team at the business area focusing on sustainability and with a sustainability director around the management team table was starting to let a few people off the hook. So it was, we'll defer to the sustainability team to take this on mm. and resource it, rather than actually taking the responsibility. So that was the early warning, I think, that there was a different model going forward that we could adopt. So, so in, a, in a bizarre roundabout way, it, by getting rid of that sustainability team, you are essentially putting the emphasis, you are, you are putting it into everyone else's job roles. It becomes part of their everyday thinking. That's right. So we, we've really been treating it as a size of change management exercise. So creating the vision of where we're trying to get to and then giving people the skills and the capabilities, but also really looking at the key processes in the business that we can integrate sustainability thinking into. So innovation being a good example of that, we have formalized the process by which sustainability aspects have to be addressed within uh, you know the stage gate type process for, for approving innovation so without thinking it through too heavily that's become just the way that we do business in Axe Nobel and, and so it, it starts to get ingrained into the day-to-day the -day business and we've done that across a number of key processes uh, probably the other big one is, is from our R&D point of view uh, the formulation work that our chemists can now do mm. can be done according to the carbon footprint. So we have carbon values in our formulating systems, oh, wow. meaning tens of thousands of products effectively mm. are able to be calculated on, on the fly. So people can make that decision that all other things being equal will go for the lower carbon. So that's that's the sort of thing I mean by embedding. And it's um, it's quite a, a brave time, I suppose, to, to, to make it. I mean, I'm sure it's been on the cards for a while and internally it's been discussed, but um, not with the uh, the big kind of carbon neutral goal that you're chasing, which is still you know quite quite a way away in terms of the deadline. Um, in terms of setting that target, was that set in mind alongside this idea that the sustainability department would become integrated and therefore dissolved as a result? Yeah, I mean, it, I should stress the sustainability team being reduced is very much at the business area level. There is still a central accident mm. sustainability team, albeit a little bit smaller than it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that goal of carbon neutrality, particularly, you know, in our own operations is very much about 
how hardwired that is into our supply chain uh, agenda. And so we are year on year making efficiency improvements, which help reduce the amount of energy that we're using, but at the same time also looking for opportunities to move to renewables. And, and what we're seeing in many countries is, you know, that, that is not coming at a cost penalty now. In fact, in some cases, we're actually able to secure lower prices by securing long-term supply of renewable energy. And, and so it becomes a, you know, a normal business decision as well as a sort of strategic sustainability aim. And when you set the targets, um, you know, carbon neutral by 2050 is, is such a such a big time frame, such a, a lofty, hairy ambition. Yeah. And uh, one, of the, one of the, I suppose, the phrases I always hear of these big kind of hairy goals is that you shouldn't really know how to get there. So, I mean, I'm sure you can't just go out and say, and say right, off we go. There's got to be some method and science to it. But how, how did AXA approach that? Was it a case of we know areas we can target or...? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think to be a leader, you, you can't just set goals based on what you can see. That's not leadership. That's, you know, that, 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 that is not particularly ambitious. Um, but it does create attention in the business when you're trying to get people to sign up to things, which is a, an intent over a very long period against you know, financial targets which are very much seen as a, as a promise to deliver to the market. So the mindset has to be quite different. So I think the way we went about that is, is to convince people that it's, it's possible, even though we don't know what all the pieces to that will be, and to have that as a, as a guiding light that then enables you to make decisions along the way. And it's not saying that everything will change tomorrow, but it's saying as we make decisions, we bear that long-term goal in mind and try and make decisions that are in line with that long-term goal. And um, I, I take it now then internally, a lot of the process is, is transferring the knowledge, the, the roadmaps into that smaller sustainability department. Is that, is that pretty much taking up a lot of your time at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the last few months really have been around making sure that by taking the, the team out at the business area level, we're not going to lose momentum. So it's about identifying what those key things are that need to continue and where the right home for those is and then doing that in such a way that, that it won't disappear. So, for instance, uh, in, in the Declare Paints business, from this year, uh, all our senior managers will have a portion of their short-term bonus that is going to be paid on the basis of a specific project target mm. as opposed to you know a, okay. a very big carbon target. It's specifically about mm. our ability to move the markets towards water-based trim and wood care products. Uh, so that's one of the mechanisms that you can use to make sure that these things actually get attention. And we, we've had you know, people's long-term bonuses linked to uh, Dow Jones Sustainability Index in the past. So, but it's also about really making sure that it's part and parcel of the commercial strategy. So that project and others like it are not seen as something separate and therefore by taking you know, dedicated mm -hmm. sustainability resource away, they will fall by the wayside. Actually, they are core to the commercial strategy of the business because by leading the market in that way, we can grow the business, we can grow our share. And so the two you know, coincide. You're doing the right thing from a sustainability point of view, but you're getting commercial advantage out of it as well. Brilliant to hear. And uh, just, just finally then, I suppose on a, on a personal point, uh, are you, you looking forward to the next couple of months? Any, any idea of, 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 of what your next venture is going to be? Or is it kind of, oh, I, might, I might give myself some time to put my feet up and relax? Yeah, I, I kind of have maybe had the idea that the feet would go up and relax, but actually the, there's a few things now starting to come in where people are asking questions and, you know, might I be able to do this? And uh, So there's a few things in the offing. Uh, not sure whether it will be a portfolio of different mm. things or actually whether it will be another full-time role. And uh, we just, yeah, 
see what's out there as opportunities and, and see where we go. Brilliant, watch this space. And I'm, I'm sure um, downstairs there's plenty of people who are willing to pitch you now, so I won't keep you from much longer. Chris, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. There you have it. A few insightful interviews to kickstart this two-part episode. It's great to hear how the finance industry is getting on board with this movement, how Siemens are really embracing a new energy frontier that we're facing, and uh, how Axo Noble has taken a, a real radical approach to its sustainability leadership role. Um, the show is actually still going on. We are in the final session. You may actually be able to hear some murmurings over the speakers and tannoys. I just thought I would wrap up the forum aspect of this episode here because um, <laughs> I, I don't want to do it in the last networking break essentially when 250 so delicate stampede through the door towards you know a drinks reception and we don't want to interrupt sustainability professionals in their natural habitat of a bar so instead I'm going to make my way to the wards awkwardly get changed into a tuxedo inside a toilet and you'll be hearing from me in a bit so we have fast-forwarded a few hours and I've also had a little trip across London. I'm now at the Hilton uh, in Park Lane for the Sustainability Leaders Awards 2018 edition. Um, I'm currently in the room where everyone will sit down, enjoy their meals, and I'm just off stage at the moment. I can, I can see where Luke Nichols will be doing his speech later on, but at the moment it's a little bit quiet. That's because... All the delegates are currently out in the foyer enjoying um, the Jinx reception. So what am I going to do? Do what I do best, really. I'm going to go interrupt them and get them to talk to me. Let's see how this goes. I've, uh, I've delved into the belly of the beast. Um, after lots of searching, I finally found someone to actually talk to me. Who'd have thought it'd be so hard to tear sustainability professionals away from a drink? Um, but here with me, drink in hand, is Jamie Plotnick, um, Head of Corporate Communications at the Carbon Trust. Jamie, uh, thank you very much for agreeing to this chat. It's nice to actually have someone to talk to. Apparently, if you have a microphone in your hand, people, people just ignore you. Yeah, people do get a little bit worried about that, but everyone seems very deep in conversation. Um, a lot of people I recognize over here, a lot of the people who've been leading on sustainability for a number of years, and quite a lot of new faces. I mean, I'm astonished by the size of things this year. Yeah, no, it's um, really impressive to see just the amount of people that I don't really know who, who they are, which is quite good. But um, obviously, you know, you, yourself and Common Trust have been involved um, with EDN these awards for numerous years now. So what do you look forward to most about this type of event? Well, what's really interesting is seeing the diversity of organizations that end up on the shortlist, um, hearing about the projects, and they change from year on year, often it's the same faces, but actually they've kept pushing ahead with really interesting new things. And it's always quite refreshing to see that, you know, I've been coming to this now, this is my fourth or fifth year, and each year the projects get more advanced, more impressive, and companies are really starting to take the lead on sustainability across all sectors of society. So it's great to see them enthusiastic and being recognised for what they're doing. I think enthusiastic is the key word here. Um, I realise it's getting a bit busy, so I'll let you enjoy your drink, Jamie. Thank you very much. The drinks are in full flow, and I think that's quite fitting uh, with my next two guests here. Um, 
In fact, uh, some, of their, some of their products may actually be around here tonight. I'm not entirely sure, but if you two would like to uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, I'm Richard Carter. I look after finance and sustainability at Adnams. And I'm Ben Orchard, and I'm the Environmental Sustainability Manager at Adams. And uh, thank you both uh, very much for agreeing to talk to me. Um, I, I've realised it's quite hard to prize sustainability and environmentalists away from alcohol, especially when it's free, so, so thank you very much for that. Um, what, um, well, I, I know the answer, but for some of the listeners, what, what brings you to these awards tonight? Uh, we're really proud to have been shortlisted for uh, two prestigious awards tonight. Uh, ben is up for Sustainability Manager of the Year and Adams is up for Sustainable Business of the Year. Which is um, obviously a, a huge you know, accomplishment um, and you know, for, for a business and for, for two professionals that are championing sustainability in such a way, what, what do these awards and, and you know, this type of recognition mean? You know, is this what you kind of get out of bed for, this kind of recognition? Or? I don't think it's what we get out of bed for, but the recognition is, is wonderful. I think ED Sustainability Leaders Award, what a, what a privilege to be invited. I'd, I'd call them the Oscars of our industry, and I think, you know, they are, they are fantastic. Recognition is, is lovely in everyone's mind, so uh, to get it, and such prestigious awards, and I do think they hold, they hold an accolade that, that people recognise these days, and uh, so it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant bonus to some of, the, some of the hard work and projects that we've been putting in over the last 12 months. Well, there you have it. Oscars of sustainability. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Um, I'll let you get on with the rest of your night. I'm sure you've got a lot of networking to do, and good luck. Um, I hope it all goes well for you both. Turns out I'm getting good at uh, picking. I, I say picking more preying on uh, random guests and forcing them to talk to me by shoving a microphone in their face. Um, and also, it seems I can't go three or four podcasts without having uh, some sort of Lancet link. It's either they invite us to their awards, or we're talking to one of their suppliers, or we're talking to Sarah Beatty. And today, um, just before we go into the awards, I'm now talking to Caroline Hill. Caroline, thank you very much for. Um, I say agreed, I think it was more of a hostile takeover, but thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me. It's my pleasure. And um, obviously you're, you're quite of a needy regular, you've spoken at a lot of our events, um, I'm sure this isn't your first awards either. Uh, what, what do you look forward to most about, not just nights like this, but events like this? Um, I think really just having the opportunity to really celebrate with my team um, and, and the many partners that we work with. So tonight uh, we're joined at our table by the UK Green Building Council who have been working with us for the last few years on a training programme and it's lovely to get together and, and celebrate what we've achieved as, as, as a team. And I, I think that's good as well. I mean, there, there's a lot of awards here, like individual company based and stuff, but sustainability has become a lot, much more collaborative um, as approach. So whilst there are, there are winners tonight, I, I'd like to think there are, there are no losers. Um, I, I, I hope so anyway. So, um, I mean, how do, how do companies, I suppose, use these type of accolades if, if they win an award or just get nominated for an award? Is that, does that help the, the sustainability strategy internally or? Um, I think generally there's a lot more interest internally in, in most businesses, businesses and from investors on sustainability and, and one of the ways that if you are outside a company, if you're an investor, one of the ways obviously that you can recognise and see how a company is doing is by how, how they perform in the various benchmarks that are out there and also awards like the one we have tonight. So I think, I think they are an important external um, benchmark of how businesses are performing. Brilliant. Well, it looks like they're starting to head in now, so I don't want to keep you any longer. Caroline, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
Okay, so we have rattled through the 16 awards and our compere Rufus Hounds um, has, well, he's done very well to keep uh, the audience alive in a subject he knew very little about. But um, with those awards being done, I've had a chance to grab a couple of the speaker, uh, a couple of the award winners. And in front of me right now is James Crockett from Pets at Home. James, um, congratulations on the award win. Um, would you like to tell the listeners what it is you won and I suppose why you think you won it? <laughs> Hi, my name is James Cockett. I'm from Pets at Home and I won the Energy Institute Energy Manager of the Year Award, which was a just wonderful surprise and an absolute shock. So I'm very grateful for the award. And um, at Pets at Home, we put pets before profit. And this award is a pet welfare project as much as it is a energy saving project. So hopefully for this award, it recognises the work that we've done across the business to do Project Ether. In Project Ether, we installed LED lights and a BEMS, a building energy management system, into over 445 stores in under 12 months. So, a great effort from the whole team, and it's great to it's great to recognise. So, thank you very much. Yeah, I imagine that recognition's uh, a nice factor. It's it's probably not something you, you know. I don't think the same people would get out of bed for that recognition, but it's not a surprise. So, my question is, you know, what makes you get out of bed in the morning in regards to your job? Um, I'm motivated to make a difference, so. People who work in this industry are not paid like bankers or footballers as much as we wish we were, but we're motivated to make a difference. So working for a business where I had the opportunity for me was priceless and Pets Home has given me that. And this award is as much for myself as for Pets at Home and the, the directors and the board. And you know, it, it's because of them that we're all here today and thank you to them. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, James. Um, so it turns out that award winners are quite hard to get hold of immediately after they won an award. Seems they are all at the bar celebrating, rightfully so. I have managed to grab uh, one. I've got Mike Hanson from Baxter Story with me. Um, Mike, congratulations first on your award. Um, I was wondering if you could just summarise your feelings right now. And bear in mind, speechless doesn't work very well on a podcast. So, <laughs> um, Well, it's completely awesome. I mean, I, I think that... Um, uh, to be to, to get this award um, when I'm being when we're being judged against, you know, some of our amazing peers in this sector, um, as a, as a catering company and the, probably the first in the food service sector to, to get an award like this, um, is amazing and um, just incredibly proud at the moment. Yeah, and as a catering company, especially in that, that kind of food area, there there are probably a myriad of challenges you have to face um, as as a firm. What what makes you personally proud that made you think that you probably stood out against these other competitors that you, you mentioned? Um, I probably think one of, one, of, one of the main things that we, we've, one of the initiatives we, we, we took on in the beginning of 2014 is we started um, uh, measuring and monitoring and reporting our food waste uh, and as a result we've reduced food waste by 49% um, which actually has a carbon equivalent of, of um, uh, 6,000 trips around the world. Uh, in terms of carbon saving. So we're incredibly proud. We saved a lot of money for ourselves, for our clients, a lot of energy, um, and the way that's been uh, bought in by the business, um, by all the managers and all the chefs out there who've really engaged with it has been um, inspiring. Well, that's, yeah, that is really, really inspiring and uh, probably a nice uh, note to leave. And actually, no, uh, before I do let you go, I realize that jazz band's about to start playing. Um, 
now that you've won the awards, you know, what, what does the next year ahead look like for, for you and Baxter Story? My next, uh, the big thing I'm doing this year is I'm developing our, uh, our uh, sustainable business strategy, uh, probably to 2025, uh, max, possibly 2020, uh, depending on how the board want to play it, but that's based on the sustainable development goals. Uh, and how we can impact every, every, and we believe we have a part to play in every single, every single one of the 17 goals. Oh, um, some tiny, some some big part to play, um, but um, that's how our strategy is going to play out. Hopefully. Well, um, I'll certainly uh, watch this space space for that. And uh, again, congratulations on your awards. Thank you very much. Well, what a night that was. For those of you listening, um, you will have undoubtedly seen the award story go up on the website, so I'll spare you a run-through of the winners, although it was good to hear from two of them earlier on. And if you haven't seen that story yet, pause this episode right now, go to ed.net and give it a little read. Are we all good? Well, if today has taught me anything, it's that sustainability professionals deserve days like these. They deserve days where they can learn from the best, talk to the best, and be inspired by the best. And they also deserve recognition. Businesses may not always have the best reputations, but the Sustainability Leaders Award is a shining example of business done right, and it's been an honour to talk to these people today. Unfortunately, the night is no longer young, and I'm in desperate need of some sleep. Uh, And while this is the end of this episode, it is not the end of the event. Be sure to check out the webpage, iTunes, or SoundCloud for the next episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, which will cover day two of the forum, hopefully featuring more exclusive interviews. But for now, it's good night.